Well, if the beginning of the service was let us worship, um, this is let us hear from God. And I love how Psalm 33 just moves from singing and praising and loud shouts and gratitude into here's what the word of God is. And, uh, and that's what we're about to do right now. It's just as part of our worship, continue um, by, uh, by opening it. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're at. Neighborhood Bible Church opens their Bibles every week. I would strongly encourage you to do that. Uh, don't take my word for it. Follow along. Make sure we're all reading from the same text. And uh, I will get there in just a moment. I want you to consider this reality that the who and the how matters immensely in life. The who and the how. Let me give you an example. I took months planning how I would propose to my wife, Becky, when she was my girlfriend. Um, The right thing done to the wrong person is a fail. Would you agree? All that months of planning, if I somehow got the girl wrong, uh, that's a fail, big time. Um, Conversely, if I have the right girl, but the wrong method, right? I pull up to her house, I blare the horn, I shout through the open window, hey, you want to get hitched? Right? Like, that's not, that's not really a great proposal. Like, come join me in life, right? Like, let's do this thing together. That's the right person, but completely the wrong way. Those of you dreaming up your proposal, if that's it, come talk to me. We've got a ton of work to do on your ideas. Let me give you two forms of idolatry. One form of of idolatry is worshiping something other than the one true God. If you get the who wrong, it doesn't matter how you worship at all. It could be as biblical as you want. You get the who wrong, it's a fail. A second form of idolatry, though, is to worship the one true God in the wrong way. To worship the one true God in the wrong way is another form of idolatry. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, who says what the right way is to worship God? I'm going to tell you this morning. Here's a hint. It's not the preacher. God tells us how to worship him, what delights him. It matters who we worship. It matters how we worship. Let me give you another illustration of this. If I were to go to one of my children and said, I want you to clean this room. The child might respond to me something like this. You've got it, Dad. By the way, you're the best. Man, thank you for not doing all the work around here, lest I turn into a spoiled, entitled teenager. You know, love does hard things, Dad, and it's clear that you love me, because I'm sure it's hard to ask me to get to do chores and follow through. So I just want to thank you, first of all, for letting me do that. I've never, ever, ever heard that speech from my kids, but it could happen not putting it outside the realm of possibility. But after that speech, I would say, awesome, cool speech, I love it, actually really means a lot to me. Now get to work, like go and do the room, right? It matters how the room is clean. Now, catch this. Does it matter who my child obeys? Absolutely. If random men are walking around telling my child to do something, they may be in violation of child labor laws, right? And they don't have to obey every person that tells them to do something. So it matters who is telling them. It also matters how that child cleans the room. I don't know about you, but in my home, people around me have a different idea of what clean this room means than what I tend to have. And the younger they are, the more variance there is between my opinion of what a clean room is and what their opinion of a clean room is. So it matters what version of clean is. It matters what it is to to delight the Father by how we carry out what's being asked of us. So how are we to worship the one true God? We would for sure say we want to look to the scriptures. We want to look to creation. We want to look to, to church history even and just see like what is this one true God that we're worshiping? We would also do the same thing with how to worship the one true God. If you're new with us, or even if you come every week, just a reminder, 1 Timothy is the book that we're going through. We tend to preach through books of the Bible around here. We're calling 1 Timothy, dwell well in the house of God. It's coming from chapter 3, where it says, we will know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We can know how to dwell as a church family. 
What we have is Paul, who is leaving this younger pastor to tend the flock of God. Really important. It's not Paul's flock. Paul didn't die for the church. Jesus died for the church. It's the flock of God among us that we are shepherding and tending to. Paul assures him that we can know how to behave in this family of faith. Over and over again, I just keep reading books of the Bible, and I keep seeing Paul and Timothy. Timothy was with him a bunch. He refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith. These were companions in ministry. He opens all of chapter 1 with this giant warning and instruction to watch out for false teachers. He says, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Would you agree with me? There's lots of opportunities to fight today. On every front, you are being goaded into fights. Christian, have a biblical picture on this. Fight the good fight. Don't fight every fight. There's a ton of bad fights. The reason he's telling to fight the good fight by implication is there's a bunch of bad fights to have. Don't have those. And you'll wear yourself out fighting the wrong things. I think the scriptures today even steer us into how to fight the good fight of faith. What is the good fight of faith? Well, at least it's the ones that, uh, that center around infinite realities and not petty, vain, meaningless fights that most people around you are investing their energy in. Part of the teaching of false teachers is they stir up controversy. Do we see any of that in our day and age? Yeah. They have endless, meaningless talk, political talk radio, sports talk radio. And we we just see this over and over. He says, fight the good fight of faith. He reminds Timothy that the law, that rules are good if they're used lawfully. That means discerning. That means picking out the good and the bad according to sound doctrine. He's going to keep coming again and again back to sound doctrine, sound teaching. That which accords with reality. By implication, there's loads of stuff being peddled and taught and confidently asserted endlessly that's not in accordance with with sound doctrine. Oh, and by the way, Timothy, keep checking your aim. He says, aim at love every time. When you start naming not only the lie, but the liars, and that's what he tells them in 1 Timothy. Don't just call out the lie, the falsehood. Call out the liars who are doing that. That leads to a messy, messy household. That leads to a lonely place as a leader, as a pastor. Paul says, Timothy, I ought to know. I've, been, I've, been had, I've had rocks thrown at me. It's called being stoned in the name of Jesus. It's lonely, messy work when you call out the lie and the liar. Make sure you're doing it in love. You don't aim carefully for love. People get hurt, just like a gun or a bow and arrow. Check your aim regularly. Pure love, good conscience, sincere faith. God will work this in you, Timothy. God will work this through you, Timothy. So stay put, pastor the church. You're welcome. That's chapter one in about three minutes. All right. That's kind of like going back. If you were to go back and listen to some of the sermons, that's some of what we have. Now we're in chapter two and he spends a whole chapter on exactly what we're doing right now. How should we, how should we behave? What should we do when we gather for corporate worship? This is called public worship through church history or corporate worship. It's as opposed to individual worship, worshiping in your household. We know from Romans 12, 1 to 2 and other places that everything really is a life of worship. But what are we to do as a household of faith when we gather for worship? So you catch this. Dwell well in the house of God. Dwell well. Don't just live together. Live together in the way that God wants us to live because it's best. That's what we're looking at. How do we worship well when we're together? And then in the house of God, we've made a point with this series to calling people back. Unless there are extenuating circumstances, come and be the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly of Christians. Over and over, and I've had this conversation with people. They've shown up for the first time in months or maybe over a year and said, wow, I didn't realize how much I needed this. Wow, I just didn't realize. It's different. I got really used to doing church with my jammies on and hitting pause for the pancakes, right? Whatever. It's a little more inconvenient to come and do this, but man, I needed this. 
Over and over again, I've, I've heard that, and it's so great that we are responding of, of coming back here. By the way, if you're listening online, you're like, I'm just not sure if I'm ready yet. Right outside this door is an outdoor service. You can sit as far away from people as, as you want. Um, you could wear a bee suit if you want and sit, sit way back there. We'll pump up the volume. You can come and be a part of us. Listen to how he starts chapter 2. After saying there's false teachers, there's all these things, stay, put church, do all these things in the church. And then chapter two, talking about corporate worship. How do I guard against false teachers? How do I fight the good fight of faith? Here's what he opens with. First of all, pray. That's the sermon this morning. First of all, pray. That's how he starts chapter two. What should we be doing? So NBC, just so you know, this church, Neighborhood Bible Church, from day one, again, we celebrate um, kind of our quinceanera year. That's kind of a big deal in the Latino culture. Um, and it's year 15. Kelly put together this great graphic. It says, come celebrate our teen years with us. We're in for it, right? Like, this is just going to be a wild time. Um, but from the very beginning, God has impressed upon us. This is, a, this is a family of faith. That's what we are. And we, we are a family of faith that worships God. One of the things that we do around here is we, we really um, have, a, have a, a meaningful membership here. I say meaningful because many, many churches, dear friends of mine that I love dearly that are doing incredible work for the Lord, I say, what is membership like at your church? Like, well, it's kind of a dusty old, old thing, and unless we're voting on something or doing church discipline, it doesn't really have much impact on our life. When we were starting this church, I thought, wow, I don't want to invest myself in more religious, meaningless nonsense. I seem to get from the New Testament that Uh, from the whole Bible, that membership is very, very important. But I think we can start a New Testament church without a formal membership process. So we waited five years. We feel like we got it right. It's very meaningful to us that you're a member of the church. We just had um, an exploring membership class two weeks ago, and I just want to show you the names. The last part of the process is that we celebrate our new members in front of the church. Ten new members um, all of whom happen to speak Spanish. They have the superpower of being uh, Spanish speakers. Um, and so this was, this was uh, at our service last, last Sunday, welcoming and celebrating these 10 new members. So yeah, we can, give, uh, we can give excitement for that. Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, I don't speak Spanish. Well, you're in luck. We do English uh, membership classes as well. Um, the next one is scheduled for November 14th. So a few weeks from now, uh, we'll do it after service and we'll do it all in English. So um, if you struggle with English, like, like most of us do, uh, we'll take it slow and, and make it work for you. We kind of think of membership like the DTR talk. A couple is dating for a long time, and it's like define the relationship. Hey, are we kind of hanging out? Are we serious? Like, what's the deal? Um, and we have basically members at this church. We have regular attenders at this church, and we have visitors at this church. And, um, and in many, many ways, again, there's, there's, there's love and there's celebration and there's, there's reasons for all three of those categories, but I would call you to consider membership. So how are we to worship the one true God? Well, God cares deeply about this because God cares deeply for his glory. I want you to consider the Old Testament for a moment. That's a lot to consider. But think about the Old Testament, two-thirds of our English Bible that we have in our hands right now. It is loaded with careful prescriptions about the who and how of worship. Let me give you an example. Think the Ten Commandments for a moment. It starts with who? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It starts with the who. The who matters, remember? You don't propose with the wrong one. So the who matters. But then immediately... He goes on to flesh out in the Ten Commandments how we are to worship him. How do you worship the one true God? Is it a free-for-all? Well, he says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no images or idols. You shouldn't misuse the name of the Lord your God. You should remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, there's an argument to be made that the next six, honor your father and mother, don't steal, don't lie, don't kill, all of those actually go on to flesh out the how of worshiping God by broadening the definition to say that every hour of every day and every human interaction, both externally and in our minds, is how we worship God. So when we say that all of life is an act of worship, I think that aligns with the Ten Commandments. Whatever you do, whatever you say, whether you eat or drink, do it all what? To the glory of God. 
you can put the stamp of Jesus' name on every place you go, it's a good week. We take every thought captive. We take every word captive. So all of life really is this, but there's careful prescriptions. But let's think about feasts and holy days, precise measurements of the temple grounds and artifacts, the dress code for the priests, all the dietary laws. Does God care how we worship? Absolutely. It matters immensely that we get the how correct. So I think you are sitting here, you should be sitting here thinking, wait a minute, we're not under the old covenant, right? Otherwise, why isn't Dave wearing the priest? Why aren't we doing the Holy of Holies? What is that? Well, that's the old covenant. We're not on the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. Our worship ought to be informed by the new covenant. Our living ought to be informed by that. So let's think about New Testament churches and what fences there are and what freedoms there are, okay? What are the fences and freedoms that we have as Christians in a New Testament church? Well, it turns out there's a lot, either by direct command or by example. Um, the following are to be observed when we gather for worship. And let me just throw a few of these up. We'll go kind of quickly through this because it gets to where we're going to do. Number one is reading and preaching the Bible, giving ourselves to reading scripture and preaching it. And if you're not the preacher, meekly receiving the word of truth. Those are things that New Testament churches are to be about. Sound doctrine. Again, he's going to come back over and over to truth and sound doctrine. How on earth do we know about truth or sound doctrine unless we're being taught it and growing up in it? It's like fuel for our worship. You want to keep putting new, fresh, dry logs on your worship? Start, keep growing in understanding who God is. Sound doctrine is fuel for our worship. But also, sound doctrine is a little bit like a script for our worship. There are things that you ought to be doing. I have been in worship services where in my spirit I feel a giant check, like, whoa. So I pray, God, is this me being not used to it? Because this is just a different tradition. Or is there some violation of sound doctrine going on here that feels unright in my spirit? Would you guide me? Would you help me with this? I don't want to participate in things that aren't in your script. And God, I don't want to miss out on things that I just have never seen this before. And so give me wisdom for that. Uh, all right, here's another thing that churches should do. This is from our, our passage today. New Testament churches should pray. When we gather for corporate worship, we ought to pray. This ought to be a, a house of prayer. We ought to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We ought to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper and baptism. So there's just a, a basic framework None of that sounds shocking. Is that correct with you? Anyone think that, that? Okay, are there other things? Maybe there's other things on the list, but that's a pretty decent little framework. These are some of the things that New Testament churches should give themselves to. But how we do these really matters as well. Let me just put up a quick list of some inner attitudes because we can do all the right stuff in the wrong way, right? And it becomes meaningless. In fact, God tells Old Testament people at one point, stop all your festivals, knock it off. You're doing it in the wrong way. It's an affront to me. So we should worship, thankfully, reverently, in unity, in spirit and truth, in an orderly fashion, in a way that builds up the whole body. Does all this sound familiar? If you've been around the church at all and you read your Bible, you're like, yeah, those are good things. The reason we do what we do in this church is according to the script of sound doctrine. God doesn't lay out a order for worship on this specific day of what we're supposed to be doing, or else we'd be doing it. Fences and freedoms. Within the sort of broad fence, God says, go play, go create, go worship me, go celebrate me, go interact, go grow up. But don't go beyond the fences. So we want to discover what those fences are and celebrate within it. All right, so chapter two is about corporate worship, how we conduct ourselves, not only externally, what we do, but how we do it internally. And a big part of our life together is prayer. So this passage is going to talk about corporate worship and specifically around prayer. All right, here we go. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read 1 to 7. We're actually going to cover 1 to 4 this morning because it really ties in neatly around prayer. And then next week, your homework for next week 
is to ponder verses 5 and 6, which I was reading one commentary this week. He said, these may be the two most important verses in all of the Bible. Whew. You want to talk about sound doctrine, we're going to take an entire week on what it is that there's monotheism, the one true God, and what it means that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Does that sound like it's worth taking a whole week on? I think so. Like that's a giant building block of sound doctrine. So I'm going to read the whole passage in context. We're going to focus on the first four verses. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let me stop there. It is important to think about our prayer life, and that's what we're going to do this morning, because we all can fall into ruts. We all were taught to pray in some way, and hopefully our prayer life has changed and morphed over time. Let me say this at the start. I don't know of many people who would say, prayer life, check. Got that one nailed. By the way, if they're saying that, maybe they need more prayer. I don't know. But almost every Christian I've ever talked to, almost every pastor I've ever talked to, if I were to ask a fellow pastor, hey, do you you think you invest enough of your time, energy, attention, in praying for the flock of God that's among you? <laughs> I don't know of a single pastor that has been like, yeah, I've nailed that for 20 years. I hope as a flock of God amongst this church, you expect your shepherds to be praying for you. You should. I feel the weight of that. And we take regular steps about how to do that well. I'm starting with this because we need a giant, like, grace eraser that says all of your failings in prayer, all of your starts and stops in prayer, all of your one step forward and ten steps back in prayer, all of your great promises in prayer that are not to be found today, take the grace of Jesus Christ and just erase all that track record. Don't don't let the enemy use that against you this morning. He wants to condemn you. It says things will never change. I'm here to promise you. God wants to grow your prayer life, your conversation with him. And God will enable you to do that. That's good news. And we're going to get instruction on what that looks like today. We all fall into ruts. Again, these are created by upbringing our own habits and our personality. One of the questions for community group this week, just for you personally, is talk to God about your prayer habits. Try and do so without judging or trying to fix them. Just try to observe what is. One of the things that that we see is language. You can always refer to God. This one buddy of mine, I still remember him. He was a youth teammate of mine. And every time he said, Father God, every five seconds he said, Father God. Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God. It was like that repetitious in prayer. And my ADD mind is like, Father God, Father God. Like That's all I heard. Father God bombs were going off. I couldn't even join him in prayer. So I went to him and I said, man... Let me show you some of the other names of God, some of the other ways that God's revealed. Do you know that God is also Son and Spirit? Now, it's not that he didn't know that, but he was in a rut of prayer, Father God, right? We all have these ruts. Here's what's really amazing, is that your rut over here and your rut over there and my rut, which is very public, you guys see my sins and ruts all the time, and your rut over here, they actually balance and strengthen each other out. Father, God is good. Maybe this guy had an incredible sense of the fatherhood of God. And his mindset was always that we're to be holy, we're going to mimic our our loving Father. That needs to be brought to a church body, right? Right? But so does God as CEO and sovereign over the entire universe. He's actually unlike any father you've ever, ever dreamt up or thought of. So we we need each other's ruts to kind of balance each other out and grow up in prayer. 
I don't usually do like the four P's, but man, this one lined up so good. Let me just give you, this isn't in your notes, um, but this was so just sitting there t- this week that I had, to, I had to do it. If you want to write it down, this is the entire sermon in one sentence. You already saw it from the text. Make all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people our top priority that we may please our Father who hears us. That's it. So we're going to kind of walk through this central truth uh, one point at a time. And because priority is there, uh, third in our list, I'm going to make it first in our list because it's first in the scripture. So number one, if you're taking notes, is this. Uh, Make prayer your top priority. What does he say? First of all, pray. Now, probably in the text, he's talking importance and not chronologically. He's not necessarily saying that the first thing you must always do is pray. He's actually saying, first of all, of first importance is prayer. That's how the language works uh, in the Greek that's being written here. But with that being said, I think they both work. If it is the most important, maybe it should be first on the agenda. Let me tell you a weird thing about pastors. Uh, When I go to a school conference, a parent-teacher conference with my child, we sit down. They always make me sit in the tiny little chair. I think it's to be humble and show that the teacher's in charge. I'm not sure why, but I'm sitting in a tiny little chair. And no joke, I have to fight the urge to open in prayer. (laughs) Why? Because pastors open meetings in prayer. You come see a counseling thing, I'm going to invite the Lord's presence. Sometimes right in the middle of counseling, we'll stop and pray. Before, middle, and after, we're praying. So I go to a school conference, I literally have to go, uh, she doesn't open in prayer, I'm like, would you like me to pray? And at the end, I feel the same urge. I'm like, well, great, great parent teacher. And let me tell you, some of my kids, there's a more urgent thing to close in prayer than others, right? Depending on the season, depending on how that parent teacher conference just went, there's much rejoicing or there's just supplication. Lord, help! You mind if I get on my knees? So anyways, that's the life of a pastor having kids at at public school. It's just kind of this weird little thing. But I think that first importance and first on the agenda, I don't get too mixed up on that. I think we ought to be having an ongoing conversation with the Lord, whether it's external or not. First of all, pray. Remember this passage is about our corporate public worship. We are to give ourselves in worship through prayer. Don't answer this, but think about this. What motivates you most to pray? What is it that motivates you to pray? If your prayer life is sort of drifting along, where are the spikes? For some people, the spike is, man, I just got a phone call about about Nana and, and her heart condition, and I'm on my knees. Maybe for some of you who had some kind of a trauma in the back and, you, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the past uh, of your life and, and a word is said, a smell is smelled, a season of the year comes, the body doesn't forget trauma. You feel it, come on, boom, spiked prayer life right there. Maybe it's just nature. Don't you love the changing colors? I love this time of year. One of my pastor buddies goes, this is my least favorite time of the year. I'm like, who are you? How can this be the least favorite? But it's what makes life interesting. Um, maybe it's just being out of nature, and that actually just that prompts your prayer life. It just spikes it because you're out just, just seeing the goodness of God through the changing of the seasons. I don't know what it is, but it's telling to kind of see, like, what is it that motivates me to pray? All right, that's a pretend question. Now, here's a real question I want real answers for. Consider what happens when you pray. Okay, I'm going to give you a few categories that I want to hear your thoughts on. Consider what happens when you pray. And let's try and get beyond just maybe the Sunday school answer. Like, like broaden your minds to consider this. What happens to God when we pray? Now, I said get beyond the Sunday school answer. I want this to be a place of massive grace. We're just having a conversation here. Throw out your idea. You can retract it later on. No court stenographer is taking notes. We're just talking here, okay? What happens to God when we pray? What do you think? What? He listens. God listens. Less. He smiles. He delights to hear from his kid. What else happens to God? He's glorified? Yeah. If he says, hey, talk to me, ask for me, and we do it, it's, it's, it's delighting and glorifying to him. 
He becomes more real, okay? Here's another one that's wild and will kind of play with your mind. He acts. He acts and moves when we pray. There's a giant mystery there because God's sovereign. He sees the beginning from the end. But he doesn't just ask us to pray, you know, with, with, with utter clarity about what's going to happen. He knows But the scriptures have given us some very clear indication God acts and moves when we pray. That's what happens to God. Let me ask you a second category. What happens to you when you pray? What happens to you when you pray? Think about it. Real answers from a real question. You feel relieved, okay? Peace. What else? You feel heard? Man, a lot of things happen to me when I pray. My perspectives change. The email I was going to hit send to, I can just delete. God, you know, that was it. That's actually, I just want to be heard, just what Catherine said. My sense of self often gets put in proper place, which for me, most of the time, is diminished. My sense of God and wonder and just peace that you were talking about, joy, it just kind of is there. Mike, what were you going to say? Changes your attitude. Yeah. And I think I'm speaking for all of us. We all need an attitude adjustment once in a while. (laughs) Prayer can do it. Catherine, one more. Yeah. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Put your mind on on the, on the real, real realities. Stop fighting the bad fight. Fight the good fight, right? All of those things, man. Here's a third category we won't take time for, but you could ponder. What happens to the world around you when you pray? Isn't it powerful to think about what happens when we pray? As I sat and did this earlier this week and just sat there with it a few minutes out of my day, it left me with this. Why on earth don't I pray more? Man, what happens to God? What happens to me? What happens to the world around me? You know, one of the phrases that's come under really hard times recently is thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Common vernacular if you're new to the country. In America, I've grown up here in San Jose my whole life. Regularly, something bad happens, we say our thoughts and prayers are with you, Rich. My thoughts and prayers are with you. What happened recently with a lot of gun violence, school shootings, is that people have begun to rage against the phrase, thoughts and prayers. And I think there's some misunderstanding, and here's why. In an increasingly secular age, people don't pray. In fact, people are actively against prayer because that would mean that there's someone or something to pray to, which in their minds might be utter nonsense. So you're left with what? Thoughts. My thoughts are with you, Sharon, in your deepest tragedy. That's not nothing. That's something, right? I mean, I text all the time. I'm just thinking about you. Man, there's a sense of that, right? But the reason thoughts and prayers has come under such great attack of late is because people are demanding action. Here's what a Christian knows. Thoughts and prayers is not a meaningless phrase. You want to use thoughts and prayers with me, Christian brother, sister, bring it on. I understand what you mean. Hey, Eric, I'm thinking about you. Eric's like, cool, thanks, man. It's Tuesday afternoon at 3.30. It's nice to be thought of. (laughs) Hey, I'm praying for you. Man, when Dave says he's praying, I think he really means it. I don't think he's being flippant with that. Thank you. Thank you for praying. I'll tell you what happens with thoughts and prayers for people who understand what thoughts and prayers are. You know, think about Christians who pray for the blessing, for the good of others, for the comfort of others. We know as Christians that to say the words, go warm and be well fed and go with the blessing of God without doing anything about it is in our holy scriptures as not the way we pray. What happens to us as we pray 
we begin to act on what we pray for. So let me give you an example. You begin to pray for the many babies and children and teens in our foster care system in Santa Clara County in your city. And you say, God, please provide them a loving, stable home. And maybe a few weeks of praying for that, you're like, no, that's not even it. Lord, provide them a loving and stable home, but from a loving and stable home that worships and loves you, is motivated from the gospel. God, please provide for these kids a safe and loving home that loves and worships you. Oh, and Please let those people who are, who are going to be the providers of that have a real heart for these kids and this, and this cause, not just do it out of perfunctory things. You pray that for weeks and weeks and weeks, and pretty soon you go, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I think it's me. Holy smokes, God, you're going to answer this prayer through me. You've given me a heart for that. We're a stable and loving home, not a perfect home. We're a home that really cares about this, doesn't just talk about it. Whoa, that sounds really scary. I better stop praying. That's where some people go. Others with heart racing show up at Foster the City interest meetings. They go, I'm going to take one step of just learning some more about this. That's just one tiny sliver of our society. You begin to pray for the things. When you, when you have something stirred up in your soul and you're, you're fired up that we're not doing this as a church, in all sincerity, I'll say, praise God that you're here amongst us. Would you keep praying about that and figure out how and if we are supposed to step in with with hands and feet and mouth and wallet and cars and houses to go and help meet that need? That's what happens when we pray. All right, Uh, let me me say one more thing about making prayer a priority. Um, One of the best prayer partners I know of is this this right here. Siri is definitely not a Christian. I talk to Siri all the time and has no understanding of the scriptures, uh, no understanding of a whole bunch of theological ideas. However... Siri is a phenomenal prayer partner. Set up a reminder to pray every single day at 3.30. Hey, Siri, remind me to pray at 3.30. Okay, added to today's reminders. Perfect. Now, you could set that for repeat, and every day for 30 days, you could pray over something. Change your life. Create an appointment with prayer. If prayer is a priority, you just put it on the calendar. Oh, that's right. It's time to pray. I'll stop and do that. I'm going to get this reminder at 3.30 and go, what was that about? What was I supposed to pray about? All right. Um, here's what Paul is giving Timothy. He's giving a command to prioritize prayer, but he's also giving a vision and a language to grow the prayer life of the church. There's so much more robustness to prayer than just one thing. So supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. So here's part two. Make all kinds of prayer. You know, there are seven different Greek nouns used for prayer, and four of them are in this one verse. Seven different words that talk about prayer in the whole New Testament. Four of them are right here. So Paul is urging prayer as a priority in its various kinds. I love the way that Eugene Peterson translated this. He said, the first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way you know how for everyone you know. That's kind of a cool thing. Pray every way you know how. You know what? That's going to grow over time. I've been praying since I was a little kid. My prayer life has grown as I've understood different things and as I've gone through different seasons. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take each of these words very quickly, and I'm going to give you a biblical uh, picture of what that might look like. The first is supplications. Supplications are basically requests, asking God for something. Let me give you an amazing parable Jesus tells us to pray this way. Luke 18. It's the parable of the persistent widow. The king says this, this powerless widow keeps bothering me, so I'll answer her. I don't fear anyone else, but I'm bothered by this yapping dog of a widow, so I'm going to listen to her. Jesus says, pray like that. Bother God with your prayers. Keep coming after it over and over. And I love that. So then it says the word prayer. What is that? Well, it's a general term covering all types of communication. Kind of emphasizes reverence. So what I put next to that, and these are all in your notes, by the way, 
Matthew 6, 9 to 10, it's the Lord's Prayer. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Prayer is just remembering who you're talking about. It kind of covers a wide range. The next word is intercessions. Uh, This word for this is only used in the Bible here and in 1 Timothy 4, 5, which we'll get to in a handful of weeks. Two times in the whole New Testament is the word intercessory uh, used and intercession used, and it's both in 1 Timothy. It sort of had a broad meaning in the Greek, which had to do with conversation. Um, And then the second part had to do with petition. So is it true that God wants an ongoing conversation and that prayer is dialogue, not monologue? Yes, that is true. Pray without ceasing. Does that mean you can pray with your eyes open? It better. If you're praying for traffic to slow down because they're all doing 90, keep your eyes open while that's happening, right? Does it require folding hands in a quiet place with darkness and music playing and scented candles? Absolutely not. Pray without ceasing. So the conversational nature of that is amazing. But also, intercessory prayer is used by Christians. I always hear intercessory prayer almost exclusively amongst Christians as standing in the gap for someone else, praying on behalf of someone else. Let me give you a verse for that, Daniel 2.17. This is where a mystery has been presented to the king. Daniel's been brought in. He goes back to his household and he says, pray. Pray that the mystery is revealed to me so I can live. Kind of a lot was on the line. He's asking for intercessory prayer. Would you make petition directly on my behalf for this thing going on? That's intercessory prayer. Here's Thanksgiving. The word's obvious what it means. If you forget, there's a holiday coming up that has something to do with it. You know, it's not only obvious what Thanksgiving means, though, it's also obvious when it's done. The fruit of a thankless Christian is evident. A thankless Christian is always whining about what isn't happening, what isn't known. A thankless Christian is self-assured or self-loathing or self-entitled. It's all around self. If you are a thankless person, you're also joyless. You're living a very discontented, coveting life. But so the fruit of a thank-filled, praying disciple. You can't always name it, but when you're around a thankful person, you want to be around them some more. Let me give you a couple verses. John 6, 11, it's the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus gives thanks. Kind of a neat thing. John eleven forty one. he says, God, thank you for hearing me. He says that out loud for the benefit of his friends. I know you always hear me, and I'm kind of doing this to be instructive, but thank you for hearing me. What a wonderful prayer. God, thank you for calling us to prayer. And someone said it earlier, thank you for listening. The best listener on the planet is God for you. Finally, Luke 17, that's where we're not 10 healed. Where are the other nine? What did the other nine go do? Sweet, I'm free of leprosy. What did one do? Turned back and thanked, gave praise to God. All right, let me move on. Just a couple of quick helps um, in, in, in praying, um, and I'll go through these very quickly, but we just can never overlook the Bible. You want to know how to pray? What, look at the prayers of Jesus. Look at the prayers of the, of the early church. Look at the prayers of the men and women of faith of old. Pray the scriptures. Open a text of scripture and pray the truths that are found there. I brought this book because I've referenced it several times. This little book is called The Valley of Vision. It is just filled with prayers about this long, written by people who are long dead and gone on this planet, alive and well in the Lord little Puritan devotional. I read probably, I don't know, three or four of these a week. It goes with me home and again. It goes camping with me. It just cruises around with me. I find it helpful to learn from other people in prayer. That's the next one. Pray with others. I had a praying family, so I got to hear prayers growing up. I had a praying church that I grew up at. I got to hear prayers of others. Here's another one. Teach others how to pray. As you go and grow in your own prayer, prayer life, teach others how to pray. I just did a quick little search on this. I've never prayed this, but it was kind of cool, and it fit our passage well. 
The thumb is for those closest to you. The pointer are those that point in the right direction. Kids, your teachers, your pastors, your doctors, pray for them. The index finger is the tallest finger on your hand. Pray for rulers and authorities. Does that sound biblical? Say yes, we just read it. The tallest people, whether you agree with them or not, pray for them. They need our prayers. The four is is the ring finger. It's the weakest. Pray for those who are in the most pain. Pray for those around you who are hurting. Gain a heart for them. And the last one, the pinky, is your own needs and your own self. Pray for that as well. Kind of a neat little tool. Here's one more, one sentence prayers. These are helpful for people that kind of revitalize a prayer life. I pulled up a couple. One is this, may I cease to be annoyed that others are not as, as I wish they were, since I am not as I wish I was. Maybe just a way to kind of get along with your workmates, your roommates, your spouse, your kids, your friends, whatever. Here's another one. May love be stronger in me than the fear of the pain that comes with caring. Man, for the broken heart that got burned because you reached out and tried to do the Lord's will, you tried to reach out in love, and you feel that callousness. What if each day started with something like this? Here's one more. May the reality that I cannot know the whole truth never keep me from bearing witness to what I can and do see. Just one sentence prayers. Little helps that might be there. All right, here's number three. Pray for all kinds of people. He says all kinds of prayer. Then he says all kinds of people. Then he goes right into for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So all kinds of people, but he highlights kings and rulers. Why is that? Look at the title image that I picked this week. There are some among us who are on stage in the spotlight and have the mics. Most of us aren't in that position. Most of us are this guy right here with the sweet hairdo and the good facial chin hair going on. He's calling for prayer. He's saying, Christian, it is your duty to pray for those who are that guy right there. The fitted suit on stage, in the spotlight, clearly in some kind of a ruling authoritative position. I want you to consider something. Consider who was the highest ruler in Paul's day when he wrote this. Anyone know this? Anyone a Bible nerd enough to kind of know who this is? I would have guessed and I would have been right. Nero. Nero was a monster. This guy was as wicked as they come. I don't care what kind of beef you have with your current president your current mayor, your current school superintendent, your boss, your pastor. You haven't had a beef like Paul had with Nero. You know what Nero ended up doing? Killing Paul. And his close companion, you may have heard of him, his name's Peter. Kind of a big deal in the New Testament. That's who Nero is. Paul says... Pray for kings. Pray for authorities. Pray for them. If someone has a problem, you come to me and say, hey, I I need to rent a place. I would say, hey, leave it to me. I know a guy. I know a guy. Who is it? It's Rob Collins. Rob Collins, a property manager. Let me put you in touch. Let me see what I can do. For every ailment, for every question, for every problem you face, you know a guy. What if I could get 15 minutes? Uh, This week, I was following behind Steve Wozniak. I I pulled behind a white Tesla 3. The license plate says Woz, W-O-Z. Lived here my whole life. I followed the Apple story. Steve Wozniak is the co-creator with Steve Jobs of Apple Computer Company. I'm like, that's got to be Steve Wozniak. I'm right near Prospect High School after my daughter's water polo game. Curiosity got the best of me, so I pull up next to him at a stoplight. It's Wozniak. Like, unmistakably, it's Steve Wozniak. Let's say I can get 15 minutes with Steve Wozniak for some computer problem I had. Let's say I wanted computers for every school uh, in Africa. If I were to somehow land 15 minutes with Steve Wozniak, think of how that might go and what he might give me, what he might do for me. I think for the most part, most people, it'd be like a pat on the head. Here's your time. Whoop. 
look at a handler would come, so he would have to be the bad guy and say, uh, we've really got to move you on to your next appointment. I don't know how that would go, but generally I don't have a whole lot of hope in that. We go to the king of the universe, the sovereign, the one who sees the beginning from the end, the one who is writing your faith story, the author and perfecter of all of our faith. That's who we have an appointment with whenever we want. And it will go way better than 15 minutes with Steve Wozniak. No offense, Steve, I don't know you. Man, make prayers for people in high positions. Finally, please God with your prayer. How do you pray in such a way that you please God? You pray in accordance with his will. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our, our, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Praying in line with God's heart means that you desire that all people are saved. Do you know who needs Jesus if he doesn't have him? Steve Wozniak. Don't be impressed by Steve Wozniak's computer genius mind. Be impressed with the fact that he's a sinner in need of a Savior. And if he has the Savior, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Man, that ought to dominate our prayers for one another. It ought to to dominate our prayers for those uh, in authority over us in some way. Pray for their salvation. It means being convinced that the gospel is for all people and not, not a soul you ever lay eyes on or pray for is outside the transforming grace of God. That's how we pray in such a way that it pleases the Father. Band, come on up. We're going to sing and celebrate the Lord's Supper right now. By the way, do you know the word Eucharist has the same sort of formative word of thankfulness? Eucharist, the Lord's table, the elements that we're thankful. We stop and we just thank God. Here's the lyric we're about to sing. His body, the bread. His blood, the wine. Love so amazing. Take out your cute little communion elements that we've now packaged in such a cool little travel size way. And the way we're going to take this together is over the course of this next song, we are going to break bread. We are going to remember the Lord's suffering. We're going to proclaim his death until he comes again, saying, Lord, when you come again, would you find me faithfully praying that all people would be saved? So let's do that right now. Sing and celebrate the supper.